Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. We are very excited about this recording, which is live in front of an audience at Circe, the conference for research on choreographic interfaces. Uh, we're at Brown University. This is an event uh, made possible uh, by the Brown Arts Initiative. And before we even get into introducing the other co-hosts, we would like to thank uh, Sydney Skybetter, who is the founder uh, and, and, and producer of Circe, and his team, uh, uh, Kate, Anna, Ariane, Kiri and virtually Kevin virtually so thank you guys this has been a phenomenal conference so far um, we will be talking about things that have happened at the conference I'm sure um, before we get into our topics I'd like to introduce my co-hosts I am joined as always by Sarah Bay Jung of York University Sarah uh, uh, quick reality check and amazing fact we have been doing this podcast for four years is that right that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so we have like bachelor's degrees in podcasting now. <laughs> I am so pleased to have earned the BA. Yes. Right? Or as we say up in Canada, an honors specialized BA yes. in podcast. Yes, honors specialized uh, 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 degree in, in podcasting. It's also a Saturday and a Saturday morning. We do not normally record on Saturdays or mornings. So that will give things an interesting feel. We might be sharper. I think so. <laughs> um, uh, that voice you hear is my other co-host, Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, you are just back from the Mid-America Theater Conference in Chicago. This is another small conference in uh, theater and performance studies, the one I imagine with a kind of different culture. There I understand people were doing jazz hands as a kind of um, uh, coronavirus era greeting. Here we're doing sort of elbow bumps or Toe touches. Or the, or the coronavirus dance, right, which we actually did on day one here. Yes, there's a social dance for wa about washing your hands in coronavirus. Um, I don't know, what, what's it like to go right from MATC into Searcy? Uh, so I was there yesterday. I was in Chicago yesterday. got back last night, and I guess this morning, actually, at 1 a.m. And it's, um, it's, the conference is actually people are trying to figure out how to engage with one another, because it seems rude to approach someone and then pause and be like, oh no, am I too close? And then step back and there's that moment of awkwardness where you're like, am I doing the elbow bump? Am I doing like a kick? Am I just nodding an acknowledgement? Uh, but, but there's always eye contact throughout the whole thing. Uh, so that's what we're trying to wrestle with right now. But the hardest thing is actually airplane travel uh, because whenever someone sneezes or coughs or whatever, they then apologize profusely for doing so and then they want you to know that they do not have the coronavirus. Yeah, as far as they know, they don't. Yes. As far as they know. <laughs> I had an awkward moment like this at a theater event at WashU recently where I was sitting next to one of my students. She introduced me to her friend, and I immediately put my hand out and then said, oh, no, I'm not going to shake your hand. And I, she had this look of befuddlement on her face. She did not know why I just dissed her in that way, and I felt bad for the rest of the play. Uh, performance in the era of coronavirus. This is one of our topics. So on the podcast today, we have three topics. We're going to talk about a very timely one, uh, coronavirus. It's impossible to ignore. It has implications for the Circe participants and for podcast listeners. Um, the questions we're looking at, how is this hyper-communicable and virulent pathogen affecting arts gatherings that is happening already? Um, higher education, interpersonal gestural communication. We initially had planned to do a topic on Clearview AI and facial recognition and the disguises and costumes and makeup that people were using to um, uh, circumvent it, but we decided at the 11th hour to discuss a whole different reason to cover your face in the 21st century. Um, we are also going to talk about the algorithms and performance edition of TDR. This is not the most recent TDR, but the one previous to it, the penultimate, the pen most recentest uh, TDR. It, it provides a sample of scholarly writing uh, about a topic much mentioned and discussed at CRC this year and in, in, in previous years, algorithms and their performance applications. And finally, we are going to talk about arts training and the brave new world of 21st century data-driven capitalism. What are the models that exist for preparing young artists to survive and thrive artistically in uh, the 21st century? Are they sufficient? What attitudes ought arts educators to have toward enabling students to share their gifts with uh, profit-seeking industries? 
Um, so before we jump into that first topic, we'll just let listeners know that we have a fourth microphone, a fourth chair here. Searcy participants may get up and join the conversation um, at, at their will. Um, we'll ask people to introduce themselves into the mic before they speak, but that will be, we'll, we'll hear some additional voices today on the podcast. Um, so first of all, Coronavirus and its implications for live arts. As of our recording, uh, the University of Washington in Seattle has um, canceled classes. Um, other universities, including Brown University, where we are right now, have announced that gatherings of more than 100 people are uh, indefinitely canceled. This is being discussed not just at uh, Brown, but at other universities. Um, so we are, uh, uh, we're already in the moment where gatherings of this type and arts um, gatherings are being suspended. So. This has implications for people's livelihoods, for people's ability to share their work, um, for the project of higher education. Uh, what are the contingency plans? I'll say this, um, I am producing a play, My, the department that I chair is co-producing a play in St. Louis to coincide with a meeting of 18th century scholars um, happening uh, March 19th. That conference has been canceled as of last night. So most of our audience for this play that we're producing is not going to be there. We now are actively planning contingencies. So, Sarah Harvey, what are your thoughts? What are you hearing about um, what universities and arts institutions are doing to cope with coronavirus? And what are some of the ideas that we should be thinking about to um, keep our, our necessary activities going? Uh, so just a couple more things to share. Uh, and actually, I think it was. Um, the playwright Lauren Gunderson posted this on Twitter a few days ago, sort of asking about what what plans theaters were making and, and pointing out, for example, that live streaming or other kinds of video recordings have a lot of union implications for live performance venues that take a lot of time to negotiate. And so you can't just suddenly say, oh, we can't do the live play. We'll turn on a couple of video cameras and let everyone live stream in. Um, so, uh, so this was something. The other big event, in addition to all the conferences and some universities that are closing, is most recently, um, I think it was just yesterday, maybe the day before, South by Southwest has been canceled. Um, and this has tremendous implications for a, a number of reasons, right? One, this is a tremendous conference and gathering and opportunity for young artists to share work. It also is tremendously important for the financial uh, well-being of the city of Austin, which charges a hotel occupancy tax. Um, much of that tax is what is used to fund local, particularly small arts, arts organizations in Austin. So uh, if you're not already following or paying attention to Eric Colleri, who's an archivist and um, head curator uh, at the Harry Ransom Center for the Performing Arts Collections there, um, he talks a lot about this and, and, and really looking at what are the implications. So I think at this point, the, even if the coronavirus goes away very quickly, which I haven't seen any, anyone suggesting that it will, uh, we're already in a situation where it's impacted the arts and education. Um, certainly in my own home institution, uh, you know, we're still navigating this, but, uh, but in, you know, in a school of the arts as a, as a kind of standalone entity, we rent our theater spaces, we have a lot of film shoots, we do gatherings of, of various kinds, some of which are connected to our academic mission and some of which are um, in support of artistic uh, communities more broadly. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I mean, it's, we're going to have to come up with some some plans. This is like the administrator side of me, the uh, art, arts and research side of me that has been advocating for distance and video and c digital co-presence for a long time is kind of like this could be awesome, <laughs> right, uh, right. and and what an opportunity, right? If we can sort of make this pivot and get enough people on board quickly enough. Um, this could be a really interesting time to renegotiate and rethink uh, the role of arts and co-presence in, in the current age. Um, yeah, there are, universities are gonna immediately have a chance to test their distance learning infrastructure, which many of them tooled up for in the age of MOOC hype. <laughs> and now, if you have it, you might be using it next week to run your classes. Harvey, what are you hearing? I've had a lot of meetings in the last, <laughs> week or two on the coronavirus 
Uh, I, I, for, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm a dean uh, at Boston University. I oversee all the arts programs there. Uh, and if you look around, you look across the United States, like you look at Italy, where Italy shut down all uh, Italian universities and colleges, it, it, it's a big deal. Uh, and you might say, well, how do you understand sort of the scale of it? Think about snow days, you know, for those of you who spend time in, in the Northeast uh, or places where it snows. You know, that first snow day, you're like, this is awesome. Like, this is amazing. This is a day I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Maybe go skiing, stay in, whatever. That third snow day gets kind of disruptive. The fifth one, you're like, okay, like how do we make up for lost classes? You know, how do we make sure that uh, we're still in line with accreditation standards? Uh, you know, so how do we allow to you know, allow our, our 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 students to graduate? So you know, so the idea of a widespread virus that might actually or create significant illness and absences and impair the operations of a university for you know a week, two weeks or more, like that's that's what you're looking at. Uh, now you might say, well, what else is there? This is something that, as a virus, uh, it's uh, the odds of infecting someone. Uh, well, it's, anyone who has it, you know, the odds are they will transmit it to more than one other person, right? And 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 that's the thing that creates the epidemic, potential pandemic aspect of it. You know that uh, each person who has it, you know, exposes more and more people to it, so it spreads quite quickly and fairly rapidly. Uh, and since it's a new uh, form of this virus, it's a new coronavirus. You know, there's not a vaccine that exists. You know, we don't know if you have it, if you will have developed immunity to it. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty around the whole thing. Uh, so what a lot of universities are doing is they're trying to figure out, well, how do we, uh, as we're awaiting the government uh, and, and, and medical um, uh, uh, sort of you know, pharma and other sort of enterprises to come together to find a vaccine and a cure or, or something to, to, to delay it, how do we get to the end point of the semester? Right? You know, so how do we allow students who are like you know, in week eight or week nine of a semester to get to week 15 or week 16? You know, and that's the immediate concern. And beyond that, there's questions around large gatherings. You know, so what happens around commencement and convocation? Like, what do you do around orientation events over the summer for incoming students? Uh, what is the impact going to be uh, for international students? If you look at any uh, major university, uh, a large number of, of uh, a significant portion of the, of the population is international students, you know, often coming from Asia, um, you know, from China and South Korea in particular. You know, so what happens when uh, potentially 10% of your student body cannot because of travel restrictions arrive on your campus. You know, so those are all the sort of the questions that people are having right now. And the scale of the potential threat is what's allowing and encouraging uh, these conversations around online learning and distance education and just what can we do with the hope that, you know, if we can get through May, you know, uh, maybe this might be just a seasonal illness that then, uh, we, you know, by June we've, we figured out and borders will open up again. And so that's the, that's the complication that we're wrestling with right now. There's all sorts of uncertainty and there's the potential for disparate impact on different groups. Um, there's not only very um, unfortunate tendencies uh, for people to express racist concern about um, Asian or Asian American people in classrooms. We've heard that about, about that in universities. Also, it, you know, the, I will share that the conference that I was um, participating in planning in St. Louis, the email that came through uh, said that the rationale for closing the conference was that if, you know, 18th century studies is a very important thing and we can all agree with that, right? Um, but that if one person were to become very ill or, or die as a result directly of participating in that conference, it wouldn't be worth it. And that, that's a hard justification to argue with. Nonetheless, the, the mortality rate is uh, relatively high, but not so high that, that many people wouldn't be willing to take the risk to go and participate in, event, in an event. Um, but what that does is then essentially ex exclude people who have chronic illnesses, other comorbidities, or of a certain age. And so you're saying, well, these events are going to go ahead, but you all are on your own and, and take your own risk, which is also unsatisfactory. Um, we have someone in our fourth Hello. chair. Hi. I, I, was, I was being polite and, and, and waiting my turn. Uh, uh, yes, thank you. Um, uh, my name is Ian Garrett. Uh, amongst other things, I am a uh, professor of ecological design for performance at York. So full disclosure, Sarah's my boss. Um, uh, but, but with that, there's been a couple of uh, things that uh, have been coming up recently that like, have interestingly bridged over and in putting it into an ecological lens as well. 
Uh, not just that there is like a visible decrease in nitrogen levels over China because of the restrictions on travel. So there's like a global area too. And if you want to talk about uh, preventable global uh, apocalyptic scenarios, climate change is definitely an area that you could go with as well. But as part of it, and not necessarily in any way related to anything pa pandemic aside from climate change itself, uh, there are a couple of different ways in which uh, distributed ways of consuming theatrical or having theatrical conversations uh, have, uh, are coming up that I just wanted to offer. Uh, one is the Climate Change Theater Action, which is like a, bi, uh, bi, a biannual um, uh, or semi-annual? I always get it backwards. How many times every year? Half a time? It's every other times? year. Yeah, every semi, other semi year. Semi-annual. I feel in a recent... No, biannual. Bi 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 semi, it happens we, twice a year. This actually happened on our last faculty. Like, think of the, the Venice Biennale, right? Yeah, right? It's in every right. other... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that commissions 50 playwrights to write short climate change plays, but then they're distributed, so there's like no attempt to congregate people right. together. There's about 200 sites around the world that have those, and then it kind of, so like the festival infrastructure is built around distribution. Right. And then uh, also, uh, coming up in June, and, and uh, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in this model of, uh, of distribution. Uh, the National Arts Center English Theater Division has been doing this thing called The Cycle uh, in, in the National Arts Center in Canada specifically uh, uh, on theater and climate change, one of the third of three cycles. And part of that has been around this idea of how do we stop moving people around to have these conversations. So it's been like a year of work partnering with a number of universities, York being one of them, um, also the Festival of Live Digital Art and HowlRound to build out and test an infrastructure so that you can, at this point, there's eight different sites of, of like, it's a three-day convening for 800 people, but across eight sites, so yeah. that it's distributed across each, and how do you build that feeling of presence that's not just live streaming, um, and that sort of, that change in audience relationship, because it sort of like locks you into various ways of, of orienting to cameras and things like that. How do you rethink that distribution? Um, and it's become uh, a much more interesting conversation as now we also, people don't want to travel to do it. Right. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, so there's an interesting conversion between the necessary steps or the recommended steps to slow uh, the spread of a virus and plans, alternative plans that have been discussed by professional associations to mitigate climate uh, damage by hold by relying on digital communication infrastructure. There's an odd thing here where, yeah, ac economic activity is bad for the planet. So de rapidly decreasing economic activity can have odd, you know, positive effects. Um, but it's, 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 it's interesting the way that this is activating conversations that have been having it, uh, that people have been having at uh, professional associations and in the kind of media and performance world about the relative benefits and limitations of digital communication. I mean, if, if, if I can hop in here, I think that one of the challenges related specifically to the coronavirus is the negative, if, the negative impact it has on gatherings of approximately 100 people or more. Right. Uh, so there are many scenarios in which you know, there, there are conferences, there are uh, sort of smaller gatherings that uh, you know, we can imagine being delivered in other ways. Uh, but if you think about sort of the core aspect in terms of what we've always argued as being one of the key things about performance, the liveness, the co-presence, it's, it's, we're all together in a room. Some of, some of us have not argued that. Uh, well, many of us have. And, you know, but if you think about you know, the, the fact that when you found your theater company or a dance company and you, and you move venues and you've gone from that 99-seat house to the 101-plus, right, then that's a sign of success in many, in, 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 by, by many measures. Uh, and if you think about um, uh, what, did it, what does it mean for a musician to perform in a large concert hall, you know, to perform, you know, not in a recital hall, but at Symphony Hall where there is 1,800 seats? You know, you know, think of Broadway and the economy around Broadway. Like those are things that we're, we're looking at and we're looking at anew. Uh, and I think that is, that's the wrinkle, that's the question. Now the economic hit attached to the coronavirus is that uh, most, sort of, if you ever check a box for travel insurance, right? Like, you know, like I will pay the extra $30 for travel insurance. There's a line in there that usually excludes epidemics and pandemics, right? Um, you know, so the, there's a real economic hit, and I think that that is something that we're, we're not talking about either in terms of what will be the economic hit uh, in terms of the arts. 
you know, when people aren't buying tickets for shows, when 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 they're when they're when they're um, um, you know, it's not just a matter of subscribers not showing up because that money's already tied, that money's locked in. What happens when you have subscribers dropping yeah. uh, and then not renewing subscriptions because they're concerned about being in a venue where? Yeah, this uh, they is, might catch something. This gets to something that Sydney uh, mentioned to me in conversation yesterday, which is a fear that imagine that the coronavirus, there's a vaccine, it's it's widely distributed next year. I mean, all of this is kind of a fantasy, but imagine a best case scenario for coronavirus, but for months people are changing their cultural consumption habits and people are coming up with ways to have smaller events or fewer events or no events. That those become habits that then get perpetuated into the future, and that is not good for the arts field in general. Well, that, I mean, that's why I think that, that you know, uh, aside from the economic, uh, I mean, I, I think the economic hit is already upon us across sectors. So there's really no avoiding that at this point. It's really about how do we adapt and how do we mitigate the, the damage within the, the spheres that are uh, accessible to us. I think there are two ways, right? One is is thinking about what you're saying, right, and, and looking at how these viewing habits are going to change. But viewing habits always change, right? And they, they, you know, like everybody was really worried that you know radio was going to kill theater, and then everybody was worried that film was going to kill theater, and that everyone was worried that television was going to kill theater, and then everybody's like, oh, I think TV might save theater. Um, and so I think you know now it's now we have yet. I mean, theater has been imperiled, and by theater I use that as a kind of blanket umbrella for live performance, but I think what Ian is pointing to is that we actually have been over the past decade or so, uh, some of us a little longer, and I don't mean us, us, I mean like us, us, um, <laughs> gesturing away from herself, um, is that uh, we have other models for how to think about connection and co-presence and uh, relational conversations and, and these things. And so, to my mind, we're going to have to dive much more deeply into that very quickly and really get um, and draw on the expert of people, expertise of people like Ian, like people in this room, like folks who are doing work in, in XR and VR, um, because they are the ones who have been for a long time thinking about what does it mean to be in a place that you're not present physically? What does it mean to talk across medial boundaries and borders? And those are the skills that I think, and when we talk about what's the value of, of theater, performance, dance, education, those are the skills that a lot of people are going to need to have regardless if they're in the arts or not. So while we see the one hit in one part of the sector, which again, I think is unavoidable, like Austin has already canceled South, canceled South by Southwest. Um, that impact is already a, a foregone conclusion. It'll just be a matter of how that gets negotiated and how it plays out in real time. What isn't a foregone conclusion is what what kinds of changes we make around different kinds of presence and gatherings. And so I really, you know, this conference is brought, you know, includes a live stream. We do a podcast rarely in the same room with one another. That's true. Right? Um, uh, many of us have been developing new and innovative techniques in terms of online education and e-learning. And, and so in some ways, I think the, the benefit of this could be really positive. Again, not taking away from all the negative aspects with it, um, not to say the least of which is, right, not the, obviously not the least of which is, is impacts on people's health and well-being. Um, but I think there is an opportunity to uh, in a kind of strange moment, deal with it, deal with ongoing crises that are much slower and have been much harder to respond to because they are slow and incremental, like climate change, right? Like an overdependence on a, an assumption of, of constant economic growth, regardless of consequences, and that now we have a really immediate crisis that is going to prompt certain kinds of change that may have as a kind of byproduct the effect of addressing some of these other things that that absolutely are as much in crisis state as, as the coronavirus, but have been happening slower and over a longer time scale, and so it's been much harder to move infrastructure and social practices around them. Yeah, and I think it there's a couple of wrinkles to this. One is that in a certain category of arts events have had small audiences for a while, right? Um, we're planning a the, the theater event that I'm planning in St. Louis is in a 170-seat theater. If there is a policy to cancel events 
of more than you know 100 or 125 people, we could just cap the audience and keep the event going. It wouldn't be all of that all that different. But and Sarah, I absolutely take your point as I always do about the the potential innovations and virtues of non-co-present um, arts transmission. It's it's hard to imagine regional theater subscribers, symphony orchestra subscribers. These big venues, this infrastructure that exists, surviving economically by giving people the alternative to purchase a live streaming ticket. The, there have been great advances on the boards TV, like National Theatre Live. There have been great advances in the video production and distribution of theatrical experiences, but I don't know that that would come close to making up for what would happen if audiences only had the choice of watching a video of a play. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I just I just want to jump in to share. Um, so Ashley Farrow-Murray uh, on Twitter um, has uh, shared that, you know, broadly she agrees um, with possibilities long-term, but short-term artists are feeling particularly vulnerable as international and national opportunities are canceled. How to support those folks in the interim, right, is, is her concern. And I think that is, that is a very real concern, especially because, I mean, what you would want to see is public infrastructure really lending support to kind of bridge through the crisis period. But of course, public support is precisely what's gonna get hit in any number of different sectors. And so how, what the capacity is, what the willingness is to support especially smaller venues is gonna be really, is gonna be really tough. The one thing I would say in terms of thinking is to start thinking about, um, and I'd be curious to hear from folks who run uh, smaller organizations, to, to really investigate how resources can be pooled um, and how different like small um, conglomerates and, and, and collaborations can, and how you know, resources can be shared in, in part you know, as a kind of distributed model to make up for some of this, right? So if we go to some of these smaller uh, events, how do you how do we continue to support people? But certainly the international and and sort of you know broad institutional support in places like Italy, right, which which has a record of, of very strong support for the arts in some in some sectors is is not to be diminished. Absolutely, thank you. So we read the TDR edition, recent TDR edition dedicated to algorithms and performance. Um, there's so much overlap between the content of that issue um, and the discussion at CRC this year and in previous years. Um, I'll give a brief summary of it because we don't suppose that attendees have, have uh, necessarily had a chance to dive into it as deeply as we have, um, but it is edited, co-edited by Elisa Morrison, who is present. What's up, Elisa? Uh, Tavi Nyango, Joe Roach. Um, there's a great, uh, uh, pithy introduction to algorithms and the concept and also the ways that algorithmic social organizations have already been countenanced in performance studies. Um, there are several apt points about the intersection between algorithms and performance. Algorithms, because they have a kind of temporal dimension, an input and an output, um, lend themselves to performance analysis. Uh, there's a kind of processual or performed nature of calculations that's integral to them. Um, and the editors also uh, point out the sort of um, tension between, on the one hand, the communitas and creativity uh, associations we have with creative work, um, on the one hand, and the assessment and control nature of performance as performance as, as performance is understood as a kind of facet of post-20th century liberal managerial culture uh, with reference to John McKenzie's important book, Perform or Else. Um, I, I, I won't summarize the entire issue, but it's divided into uh, three parts. There's a part on algorithm algorithmic avant-garde. There's a section on the challenges of producing and consuming algorithmic art with a couple of pieces um, referencing Annie Dorson. Annie Dorson writes a piece herself assessing the sort of current, uh, her current state of thinking about the algorithmic theater pieces she's created. And then Miriam Felton-Dansky uh, has a wonderful survey of uh, her experiences watching Annie Dorson's work. And then there's a, the embodying algorithms uh, section, which particularly focuses on pieces in which audiences engage in algorithmically organized events and they become agents and they become more aware of themselves as uh, terms in algorithmically shaped social life. So that gives you in the nutshell that this edition, there's a lot in here to talk about. Um, I don't know, Harvey, what were, you, what were some of your big takeaways reading this, this issue of TDR? I thought it was fantastic. So, 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 so well done, Elisa. I, I thought it was absolutely <laughs> great. And it was one of those things where, uh, you know, like, it's, 
you know, I will admit I had not spent that much time thinking about the intersection of algorithms and, and performance, uh, but it was actually uh, one article in particular, uh, which is Ulf Otto's um, essay, uh, yeah, it was my uh, absolute favorite. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and, and that piece, you know, and, and, and I would say it's my favorite not only of this issue, but it's kind of my, my favorite thing I've read, I would say, in probably the last six months or so. Wow. Uh, it was fantastic. And, and what it was, it's like it actually made you think about sort of how you know, you can sort of embody these sort of algorithmic, the algorithmic function, you know, so everything from, you know, how uh, you can sort of sort and organize groups of people, you know, but also it sort of gave you that sort of meta sense of, of, of how to think about the world we live in. So I'm going to offer one quote uh, from Otto, and Otto says, um, um, algorithms now know things about us that not only uh, do we not know, but we cannot even retrace to their origins, uh, nor can we critique. You know, and it's just the sense that, that the sheer scale, the size, uh, the scope is one of those things where it's almost beyond us to fully contemplate, but yet it determines our everyday. You know, and it's totally worth checking out. So that, that was my takeaway. Absolutely. We have uh, Lisa Morrison in our fourth chair. Very apt. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to read through the issue. We are really excited about uh, it being out, out there in the world and, and hope that um, everybody here can, can check out at least part of it. Um, all photos, I, I feel like when we got that submission, I felt like it was something that was not only extremely clear and cogent in terms of its writing, but also talking about a piece that is, as you said, Harvey, really trying to physicalize and um, experientialize um, algorithms, right, in a way that, that can um, become sensible. You know, my when when we started talking about putting together this um, algorithmic uh, algorithms and performance special issue, my mind immediately went to Annie Dorson's work, and of course, as you said, you know, her her work really is a through line, not only in that middle section, but kind of throughout. She's referenced, um, and uh, and something I think that is really interesting to track, and that we you know we note in the introduction as well, um, the. The shift in, in her thinking, and even you can hear it in the other articles as well, between her 2012 issue on algorithmic theater, which was one of my first introductions into thinking about algorithms and performance, um, in which she's really um, exploring, as many other artists have um, since as well, but what happens if you put a program into play and then take your hands off the controls and ask the audience to gaze into these procedures that are happening all the time behind our screens and in our world and what we uh, kind of confront what we hope to see there, right? It's, it's a lot about what, you, what you're hoping to see and, and what you're trying to unpack from these um, machine-generated chatbot scripts uh, that sometimes humans are reading and sometimes um, machines are reading. And then in the issue, issue uh, the article that she wrote for this issue, it's much more cautionary. It's so, it was so interesting to me to track that, uh, that shift. Um, not that she isn't still deeply invested in making algorithmic theater, she is. Um, but something that she brings to the fore there is the, the political consequences of, um, of playing with the aesthetics and uh, capabilities of algorithms in performance and bringing in particular up the um, e algorithmic theater in the era of deep fakes, right? And, and she makes the brilliant point of, you know, in some, she's quoting some definition of algorithm, algorithms and basically, you know, very, uh, cleverly says, and that's the best description of theater I've heard in a long time about you know resting on that that um, razor's edge of uh, reality and representation, truth and falsity, the thing that has made people uncomfortable since Plato, uh, and then and has a somewhat cautionary, I suppose, or at least thinking really deeply about the ethics of of making this kind of work um, in in terms of. Um, I think she, she puts it as, you know, rather than necessarily playing with enchantment in the performance of algorithms, um, to think about how we might offer skillful disenchantment uh, in this. And I thought that that was just a really um, a brilliant thing to, to put out there. And Ulf Otto's piece, I think, exemplifies a, a, a piece of theater that is 
actually does not include much slick technology at all. It's about physically experiencing what it feels like to be sorted, essentially, and being asked to sort. So, um, so I just wanted to add that to the conversation, and thank you again for uh, taking the time to read it. Thank you, Elisa, for that editorial insight. Ulf Otto's essay is called Theaters of Control, the Performance of Algorithms and the Question of Governance. Sarah, I don't know, do you have, do you have thoughts about the issue? I could go on from here, but I'm curious to know your take. Well, I, I just had a, I mean, there were, I, I thought overall I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I think um, uh, Annie Dorson's piece is, is particularly useful for those of us who are trying to make the case of why not just seeing theater or making theater right now matters, but also how theater gives us the tools to think through other kinds of really critical questions, right, in terms of our relationship to truth, uh, information, our participation in, in certain systems of power that um, and media that, that circulate uh, ideas. So I found that really engaging. Um, I think the one thing I was, I was looking for and didn't yet find in this issue, but I would l like to see in future work around this, is, um, is some more unpacking of, uh, of digital algorithms in particular. Um, there's been so much really great work in terms of critique of how these operate and, and what they mean. And, and we've talked about it at Circe in, in past conferences as well that um, uh, I felt like, you know, it's certainly a really rich avenue to, to be explored. I was also really surprised that um, Mark Hansen's Feed Forward um, work, which is a kind of revisiting of Whitehead and, ph and phenomenological theory in relation to contemporary media, particularly the idea that media now, um, and, and this is true for a lot of algorithms, is really about media, m media that talks to other media, right? Machines that talk to machines in a language that machines understand and in which human intervention and human comprehension is not factored in as part of it. Um, and, and I really, uh, his work is circulated, it, the, that book came out in 2015, um, circulated pretty widely, and, and I, think it, I think it has a lot to speak to some of the things and the issues that are being raised in the, in the, in the essays here. Um, it's certainly always great to read Miriam Filton-Densky's like, criticism, I really admire her, her work, and uh, so I don't offer this as a, as a critique as much as just as something I'm really, uh, I think, I think it, this kind of, presents a nice kind of opening to, to some other uh, further discussions. Um, the other thing that I found myself wondering about as I read is really thinking about workflow. And I think for, for and, and this may be an open invitation to the folks in this room, right? For, but for people who collaborate across different modes of live performance and, and other kinds of audience you know, oriented work live, especially co-presence um, uh, work, and negotiate technology of one kind or another, um, there are very particular kinds of workflows that are completely different from theatrical workflows, right? Like, so, or, or if you think about like, like some of the work that we even did yesterday, right? Get a bunch of people in a room, give them a process. It, we can all kind of engage in that. We can all kind of pick that up very quickly. Um, you know, introduce uh, a, even a, a little bit of processual technology, and that workflow collapses, right? It just works at a completely different time register in a completely different way. Um, and so I'd be really curious to, to think through or to have an opportunity to hear from people like Annie Dorson and others really talk to the different kind of approaches and modes of these different uh, ways of ways of working. Yeah, I, I'm going to offer um, a, a sort of critique that occurred to me that applies to, I suppose, the, the, the essays that I read overall, which is that it behooves us to have a sort of operative the theory of society to try to make sense of these new technology and performance forms. Um, when you're reading them strictly as aesthetic objects or you're, you're understanding algorithms by doing a kind of intellectual history of the mathematics and where does the name come from and how do we arrive with this kind of device and you don't have social theory in the background, I think you might have a tendency to revert to some old questions. So uh, Annie Dorson meditates on the blending of fiction and fact and isn't that how theater and, uh, has, has always worked? Or we look at you know dramaturgical structures and the way they can be assembled and how different pieces like rise to a climax, et cetera. And that's all fine, but I also found the issue of work elided a little bit, which is to say that 
if you adopt, say, take just one theory of society at random, say, uh, historical materialism, Marxism, right? And you try to come up with the, an account of what algorithms are within that theory of society, um, you analyze them in terms of a class theory of society, right? Why do these, why has there been so much investment in these technologies? Well, the, the private investment in them has been trying to find trying to find ways to replace workers. The algorithmic entities, these uh, little, you know, incomplete artificial intelligences, there's been a lot of work on trying to teach them to drive cars, to operate uh, call centers, et cetera. So the, the whole discourse of having artificial humans on stage or in performance, the, you could argue that there are big ideological forces pushing us to think about why algorithms could be like substitute humans in the first place. Well, it has to do with political economy, right? And I think also there's there's sort of dimensions to this uh, that affect the way you would think of um, an ideology critique in a couple of different ways. One would be the notion that these things are normal, uh, that they're good consumer products, that we should accept them into our, our lives is completely ideologically driven, right? It is driven by a picture or a, a, ver, a, ver, a, ver, a vision of what is normal that is completely supported by the dominant mode of production in society. And also, on a separate level, the, the algorithms have a kind of ideology effect. They are serving you the next song in your playlist. They are suggesting to you the video that might be most appropriate to your interests. They're essentially externalized thinking. They're, they're doing the work of, of thinking for you in various little, perhaps limited, but overall substantive um, and substantial parts of your life. So in a way, the, um, the, the algorithms are a kind of ideolo ideological entity in themselves. Now that is just the implications you would get from choosing that theory of society. And if you were to adopt a structural functionalism or a systems theory or a different theory of society, you'd get to other implications of these things. But I think that this type of scholarship on algorithms needs social theory to uh, give it a foundation for some more um, pressing and critique claims. We'd have a, 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 another occupant of our fourth chair. Hello. Hi. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm Brandon Powers. I'm a creative director and choreographer. I wanted to offer a response to your question, Sarah, about workflows um, and just a, a case study of my own of working hand in hand with an AI, um, uh, specifically around uh, performance and dance. So. Um, uh, that, just for context, I uh, worked on this experience called Frankenstein AI, um, came out of the Columbia University Digital Storytelling Lab, um, and the whole experience, which we premiered at Sundance in 2018, uh, was about deconstructing um, the algorithm and the idea of bias around AI and what uh, and the monster that we are creating. And so we used Shelley's Frankenstein as kind of a way in uh, and thinking about um, okay, if we're building these AIs the way you're talking about now with commerce data and defense data and all this nasty stuff, what if we feed it instead the hope, dreams, fears of human emotion, right? And so audiences actually moved through our experience and um, would help train the AI um, by actually having real life conversations with each other, um, which then fed our AI in real time. They would interact with the AI in the next room um, through sonic and visual projections and all sorts of exciting um, stimuli, uh, which would then in turn help to continue to train the AI. Uh, and then we had a special performance where I worked to create uh, an embodiment of our algorithm and an embodiment of the machine learning process, um, and so created this kind of algorithmic choreography. Um, and then in real time, the AI was manipulating that choreography by speaking in our dancer's ear, um, the emotional state it was in based on audience interaction in the piece. Context, sorry. <laughs> um, and so the idea of workflow in that, I think ultimately um, the most exciting moments were also the most frustrating moments, um, which I think probably we would all agree on with this type of work. Um, but in particular, a couple things come up. One, uh, really learning how the best moments that I had were 
when I could understand what I was giving as the artist and what the technology was giving to me as the AI, right? And like, so what can the AI really do best? It can think of tons of options really fast. It can fire things off for me. Um, let's let that do its thing. I don't need to worry about that. Let it manipulate the choreography. What do I do really well? I can have an aesthetic eye. I can um, also understand dramaturgy, right? So that for us was the, our biggest workflow that we realized, oh, we're gonna create this like narrative rail experience and then let the AI kind of mess with it inside these little boxes along the experience. Um, and that collaboration worked like extremely well um, and something that I wanted to take and be like, oh, this could work in lots of different types of performance, just as a model in general, um, and like to encourage others to do that. Um, and then lastly, I just add, I think the most exciting moment of that whole collaboration is when we were in just the room. Our AI wasn't behaving the way we wanted it to, um, and we. That is the that is the moment of workflow I was really talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So yeah, so the. AI, the, literally the day before press previews at Sundance, so the day we're all going to lose our freaking minds, um, the AI was too angry because it was still very young, um, and we were training it on Reddit data because we were trying to find highly emotional text. Um, it, was, it was Reddit and Shelley's Frankenstein text, um, and great combo. Uh, and it was just not... It kept going into the angry state of our 12 options, and thus every sonic and visual element that was getting selected by the AI was angry because it was just reading everything as angry, right? And we said, okay, we gotta, we gotta mess with it, we gotta pull the gears a little harder because the press needs to see all this amazing work that we did. They're just gonna see one of the 12 versions of this experience, that's crazy. And we talked for like two and a half hours, like all, it's choreographer, uh, commercial strategist, a filmmaker, a sound designer, you know, all these people. Um, and ultimately the data scientist in the room is like, this whole thing is about letting the AI not be biased. And so how are we in this final moment gonna pull that lever on it, uh, let it do its thing. And so we let it go. Um, and then it was exciting to see over the course of the experience, um, it grew a lot, you know, but so case study. The, the young things often do. Yeah. Right. It's like a, it's like a very bad moment of parenting. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. We will be angry forever. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love that line. You know, the, the AI was angry <laughs> because it was young. Yes. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It might have had other reasons to be angry, but all we knew was that it was angry. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you. Thank you. So we wanted to talk about arts training. Um, many of us work in, in higher education. Many of us have undergraduate students or, or graduate students who we are attempting to prepare for careers in the arts in a rapidly changing world. Um, this isn't, I mean, for all the, the topics to try to fit into a five-minute segment, this is probably the most ridiculous, but we wanted to make uh, a time and space to, to talk about this question. So really, there's a couple of different sub-questions within this. But what are the ways that young people are entering the arts now? And are those changing? And what assumptions about training and professionalization need to be revised? Um, um, I'll just throw this question out, the sort of curriculum question. In my experience as a college student, graduate student, professor, there are different versions of the kind of senior experience that a theater or dance major undergoes on their way out the door. There are sometimes internships uh, where you can be set up with an arts institution or maybe a private company uh, to get some work experience, build your resume. There are sort of capstone experiences where you build something of a certain magnitude and that is sort of finishing your training as an independent artist and your ability to synthesize the work that you've done, etc. Um, there are workshops in which you sort of learn about the different options available to you. These to me seem like they're very much rooted in sort of 20th century uh, thinking. That doesn't mean that they're wrong or obsolete, um, but do we need to revise them? Are there different ways that we need to be treating our um, young students as they're completing their educations? So I don't know. Sarah Harvey, what do you think about this question? Um, so, uh, so this is a conversation that we are in the midst of having uh, at York, and I imagine a lot of other places are having it as well. Um, I will say right now, just speaking, uh, I'm always a little uh, wary of, of how I speak on this podcast, right, um, and how I am heard. Um, so I'm speaking right now as Sarah. I am not speaking as uh, as a dean or as the dean. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, I will say for myself, I think that uh, 
principles of, of, of art and imagination are fundamental to every discipline, every industry. Um, I think we need to continually make that case. We've been continually making that case. It, it needs always a kind of refresh of vocabulary, but also knowing how to reach out and, and form partnerships and true collaborations in which uh, artists, and especially our, our students and emerging artists, engage with that as an equal collaborator and partner, not as the decoration, not as the finishing, not as the, you know, the generator of brochure copy, right? So understanding power dynamics, I think, are really critical to that. Um, I also think that the arts are really important right now, and I'm going to talk broadly, arts and technology, in terms of thinking about what are our social uh, needs and, and our social communities right now. And I really, the, the phrase I have for this that I've used in other contexts is the arts is socially responsive technologies. That these are tools and techniques of responding to uh, social formations and ongoing uh, social concerns, as well as providing a, a place of critical, but also creative uh, critique, right? That it's not just about pointing out what's wrong. It's about saying, like, this is what should change, and here are some options for how to change it. Um, it is about the fostering of imagination, um, both for its own, sa own sake, but also in service to, to how we might think um, about improving the lives of the people around us. Um, and the, the sort of other kind of key idea that, that I have around this is, um, uh, you know, for, for lack of a more elegant phrase, is, is arts without borders. And, and without disciplinary borders, without uh, medial borders, without or beyond uh, international and cultural borders, right? Acknowledging uh, that those things exist and in some places are deeply connected to and important in the fostering and the formation and the training itself, right? This is not about, uh, you know, creating a bunch of, you know, uh, 30% generalists, right, who have no deep specialization or who are lacking in particular techniques and training, um, nor is it that every single person in order to be successful needs to get, you know, both a computer science degree and a fine arts degree. It is to say that one can focus in a, in a discipline and, and gain a certain level of expertise, but then needs to be doing that training with a mind towards how is that going to reach beyond. And I am increasingly um, dissatisfied, again, speaking as, as Sarah, um, with the institutional borders and boundaries that have been established over the course of the last 200 years of higher, acad uh, uh, higher education in academia, and, and really want to think about how can we productively and carefully dismantle and refigure, reconfigure those, right? Um, I think change is really hard, and, and disruption uh, means that people are adversely affected, but I think that there are ways to do it with care and compassion and collaboration that protects what is most uh, valuable in those experiences while also creating new models of, of work and collaboration for the future. It's a very impressive spiel, and I, if I were you, I would own that as dean as well. That's very good. Uh, uh, on edit, I, I'm, I, I'll, this is Sarah the dean. It's the not A, right? You got it there. Uh, <laughs> earlier, and I completely agree with everything Sarah said. Just to add a couple more things, I think it's important that we learn how to, and we're not shy about monetizing our work. Uh, I mean, I think too often we uh, sort of want to say that uh, you know, the, you know, the art is for, you know, art is indeed for everyone. Uh, but we sort of take out the sort of the economic, the need to sort of support ourselves, pay our bills, um, you know, sort of pay for distribution rights and all that type of stuff. And we need to sort of own that. So to so be a bit more entrepreneurial and give people entrepreneurial skills. I think marketing is key and, and also sort of the means of getting the work out there. Uh, increasingly, I feel as though we need to be able to package whatever we do uh, to the size and the scale of a phone. Uh, because it's like, it, you know, we still have the sense across different um, uh, uh, disciplines yeah, that we still want people to walk into a room, you know, with us, you know, for us to show our work, even when that work engages technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead we need to sort of acknowledge the fact that people are juggling multiple things, including ourselves. And if we can yeah, deliver it, at, you, know, you know, to the point where it's in someone's pocket, our artistry can be sort of put in someone's pocket and they're in an experience, then that creates the opportunity for more investment. Uh, and, and to go back to the first point in terms of monetizing it, you know, there are examples across universities uh, in which you know, there are departments, you know, in many cases outside of dance, outside of theater, outside of visual art, uh, that have 
been quite successful in terms of attracting outside investment and grants related to the arts and technology. You know, and it's, it's finding out where that flow of grant funding is, where that foundation funding is, and, and tapping into it and not saying that uh, people who sort of I, who are arts passionate but are based within a different discipline have full and sole access to those funds. That's really helpful, Harvey. I think listening to you helps me clarify a distinction between, on the one hand, a model of higher education that attempts to give to industry everything it wants in pre-trained workers and absorbs the discourse of corporate America in ways that compromise its mission. A distinction between that, about which I'm inclined to be cranky and, and see change as uh, going in that direction, and a sort of realistic exp uh, uh, picture of what an artist needs to do to actually pay their bills, right? So monetization, it's like, how do you get grants? How do you write grant proposals? How do you balance professional activity that might give you some income with the, the more independent work that you want to do? In other words, it's, I mean, this sounds parochial, but a kind of, you know, a, a class in, um, identifying different streams of in income or running an artist's budget or producing your work on different models of, of income might be something that's really useful. Um, there's much more to say here, but we're going to transition into our drafts. Uh, drafts are our incomplete thoughts, our musings, our uh, not segment level thoughts, but uh, smaller thoughts. I'll, I'll kick us off really quickly. Mine is just a movie recommendation. I'm a sci-fi fan. I'm very excited about the Dune remake that's going to uh, come out in November. Um, but I recently streamed the movie High Life. Is anyone familiar with this? Robert Pattinson. The poster is just Robert Pattinson with like a space helmet. So I'm like, Robert Pattinson, space helmet, that's all I need to know. Well, it's directed by Claire Denis, um, amazing avant-garde French filmmaker. And it is a science fiction film, but it's got a lot of uh, very surprising qualities. The, the, the effects, the attempts to do weightlessness or sort of realistic space stuff are very minimal, very theatrical. Um, you feel like you're in a sort of 70s low budget film set or a theatrical set that's doing space. And really most of the, the action and interest of the movie is just Robert Pattinson with a baby. The premise is that he and his daughter are the last survivors of this suicidal uh, experimentation or scientific research trip into a black hole and the only ones alive left on the ship are Robert Pattinson and his baby um, but it's just a lot of him and the baby like on the spaceship like playing and 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 being you know close to each other and it's it's so there's a lot more that's surprising in it also uh, uh, Julia Binoche uh, Mia Goth Andre 3000 are in it so highly recommended um, uh, nerd film rental experience. Uh, Harvey, what's your draft? Uh, my draft is based on looking at, over the last few years, there's been a number of announcements in terms of like new artistic directors, often, often artistic directors who are women or, or, or women of color or, or men of color or, you know, just of color, <laughs> right? You know, and, and there's been a real celebration and embrace of the changing face of artistic directorship uh, across the nation. And what we haven't had a conversation about is that oftentimes people are going into these, uh, uh, these, 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 these companies, uh, these festivals, uh, these theaters, uh, and inheriting a fair amount of debt, right? So a lot of these companies have structural deficits that are overwhelming. Uh, and so while we're acknowledging the change of the face, we're not also sort of acknowledging that this leadership is having to tackle these challenges. And my fear, and this is my draft, uh, is that there's gonna be a point in time in which the narrative's gonna shift. It's gonna say, oh, I look at this company, look at that festival, uh, look at the mounting debt that it has, yep. uh, and that debt is gonna be attributed to the new artistic directorship and not be attributed to you know, the person who was sent off you know, a few years earlier and celebrated in which no one really acknowledged you know, the situation, state of affairs that they were leaving behind. It's yep. the, the quiz show effect, right? <laughs> Do you remember this movie, Quiz Show? Yes, yeah, and, uh, and John Turturro, right? And so it was in which uh, a Jewish contestant was always superseded by uh, uh, a, a white Anglo-Saxon uh, WASP contestant who did just a little bit better. And so the reinforcing narrative in the sequencing and, and the revelation that the whole thing had been rigged was to constantly create uh, the appearance of an objective demonstration of white supremacy. Right, so, so there's a kind of, I, I mean, this is, I don't think, malevolent, but, but if one thinks about this kind of sequencing and attribution, um, it's, it's the quiz show. Yeah. 
that's honest. Sarah, what's your draft? Um, my draft is uh, thinking about museums. So I have been very slowly working on this book on digital historiography and performance, which I'm now happy to be collaborating with uh, Deborah Kaplan of uh, Baruch College of City University of New York. And uh, one of the, the parts of this book is, is thinking about museums. And so I've been thinking about performance and, and digital um, histories as they manifest in museums. Um, and the ways that digital technologies turn different kinds of museum history into modes of performance or engage modes of performance. And then in the most recent uh, revelations of COVID-19 is that all the Chinese museums are closed. And so they're now creating interactive virtual experiences in and through the museum. So I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, never write a book on digital anything because it's impossible to catch it. <laughs> Um, so I am now again revising this section uh, of the book to, to uh, account for and accommodate this. But, but as I think about and, and also talk to curators and museum directors and outreach directors and educators in, in museums, the need for a really um, robust but also a tremendously innovative strategy around what is the goal, of, that it can't just be having a good website and doing some interactive events uh, that there really needs to be something more robust. And I, and I think this is where people who are thinking across lines of design, technology, performance, um, uh, digital media in particular, can be of real service to uh, museums and cultural heritage sites as they try to not just engage new viewers and new audiences and new um, visitors, but also navigate uh, different moments of crisis, like the one we are currently in. The ongoing crisis. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, Harvey, as always. Thank you to Sydney, the Searcy team, all of you participants, the people who uh, volunteered their voices in the fourth chair. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come and, and record here at this event. And listeners, uh, we'll have more audio for you in about a month. And there it is. Thank you so much. <laughs>